So from time to time, I'll have people come up to me, perhaps right after I've given a talk on innovation, and they'll say, David, I'm just really struggling with creating good ideas. Can you provide some advice? Usually what I say to those folks is, is, well, how many bad ideas are you creating? And their reaction is always kind of like a, huh? huh? Bad ideas? I'm not trying to create bad ideas. It's like, that's your problem. Because (laughs) it takes a lot of ideas to come up with good ones. And most of us don't do that because we're deathly afraid of making mistakes. There is incredible value in mistakes. Lots more on this. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. Here we examine what enables true creativity, how to convert ideas into innovation, and seek out what ignites enterprise-wide growth. I'm your host, entrepreneur, strategist, and user of metacognition, David Peterson. Well, thanks for joining me today on this podcast, focusing on the value of mistakes. One of the first slides that I put up whenever I do innovation presentations is a slide with multiple products on it. So it's just pictures on the slide. And it's got Post-it notes, Sweet and Low, Play-Doh, Roundup, and my all-time favorite, Ben's Row Game. If you've ever seen a photograph of David Peterson, you would understand why that's my favorite. And I asked the crowd, what do all these products have in common? And and without fail, generally I will get one or more people from the crowd to to actually shout out something like they were discovered by accident. And really we could substitute the word mistake by accident so that so that these are products which are very well known that literally have become almost names that take over the the category kind of like Xerox, right? But in fact, all of these are products where the inventor or inventors were working on inventing something and had a very specific and definitive idea about what they were trying to make, but instead came up with this, uh, this other, uh, this other thing, right? And and so it it really shows one of the key elements of why valuing mistakes is so important is that. Uh, is that in many cases, we are not paying attention to mistakes that occur in our everyday routine as the place where we could think about innovation. And then moreover, while we're in the process of innovating, there may be sort of mistakes along the way or paths that don't necessarily lead us to what we thought was going to be the innovation we were seeking, but instead serendipitously create a completely different or parallel opportunity or tangential opportunity that could, in fact, uh, wind up being much, much bigger than the original. Let's take Roundup. Now, this is a controversial product. There's all kinds of lawsuits now about Roundup. But but originally, back back in the day when they were first trying to uh, work on this product, before it was called Roundup, it was just an experimental process by Monsanto. They were working on trying to come up with a solution that would make the plants that it was sprayed on grow faster. So they were trying to increase 
Well, maybe that's not the way to say it. They were trying to decrease the amount of time that it took for a plant to grow to maturity. That's the best, that's the best way to say it. They weren't trying, they weren't trying to increase crop yields. They were just trying to speed up the amount of time that a crop would get to full maturity, right? So that perhaps uh, the idea being is that you could get multiple harvests out of a crop that may uh, only have one crop cycle per year. And as they were working on it, it was wildly successful. The product made the plant grow so fast that it literally outgrew its ability to draw nutrients from the soil. And so what they tried to do is slow it down. They tried to say, well, uh, it's, it's working too well. It's, 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 it's killing these plants. So we don't need it to be that fast, right? But all of their iterations of trying to get the Goldilocks just right growth rate never worked. But in the process of doing that, they, they wound up creating an amazing weed killer, right? And so, so you could say that they obviously failed at their attempt to make products grow faster for the intention of coming out with a positive result for, for growing plants, but completely succeeded in accidentally discovering this weed killer. So, so that's, a, that's a good backdrop for our discussion today on the value of mistakes, right? So, so every one of those five products that I mentioned, Post-it Notes, Sweet and Low, Play-Doh, Roundup, Men's Rogaine, all of those companies or individuals were actively working on inventing something. They either had a need in mind, a specific outcome in mind. They were working on, uh, in some cases for years, developing and working on different types uh, of activities to achieve their desired result and ultimately never succeeded in their original plan or their original design or their original desired outcome, but did succeed in creating something that was actually very product and financially successful. So the thing that I want to really emphasize for you here is that those inventors were not afraid to fail. The, the idea that there would be a failure and that that somehow would, would be a, a black mark or, or a stain upon them is nowhere, nowhere in the, in the inventors or the, the inquisitive, you know, creativity to innovation mind. This idea that, ooh, 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 we have to be so afraid of making a mistake. The fact that they didn't have that allowed them to spot the quote failure that actually turned out to have great value. So I recently have been reading um, a, a great book called A Whack on the Side of the Head by Roger Van Auk. And, and I highly encourage you to get this book. There'll be a link to it. It's actually an older book. It's been out for many, many years, but it's incredibly insightful. So you can go to the show notes and find a link to this book. But one of the things that you know, I've just been sort of reminded of all of these different things as I was reading through the chapter on mistakes that Roger has in that book. And it really brings up the question, why are we afraid of failure? Think about that. If you asked yourself the question, when did I, when did I curtail an activity or not move forward or not raise my hand or offer up an idea or anything like that based on my being afraid of a failure, afraid of being wrong, right? And you know it's happened. You, you might even be able to relate some examples from just the recent past, this week, perhaps. 
Well, the number one reason, I believe, is we are afraid of ridicule. Nobody likes to be ridiculed for any reason. That's just our human nature. But certainly, if you think about our peers, those individuals that are, are working alongside of us or any kind of bosses, or like I say, your boss and your boss's boss are the, are the two most important people in an organization. If we were in an open situation and they were asking for brainstorming ideas and we raised our hand and we offered up an idea and it's a crazy idea and it gets rid of, and everyone's, oh, 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 Peterson, what a, what a crazy idea. And, you know, then even ongoing, you know, through the, somebody sees, oh, yeah, 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 you're the, you're the guy with the nutball idea, whatever. Those, those things uh, uh, become a huge barrier for us in terms of continuing to come up with to come up with ideas, right? So we don't want to get that ridicule. Now, moreover, think about this. Think about from literally the time of elementary school, we are taught that failure is bad. Failure is bad. And it's ingrained with us. You know, think about how many tests you had to take probably from the, you know, I don't know, second or third grade on. And I assume that they still do this. Uh, school, <laughs> school grading has changed. But what I remember is, is above 90 was an A, above 80 was a B, above 70 was a C, above 60 was a D. Anything less than a 60 was an F, a failure. So, so think about it. If you did something right 59% of the time, uh, or if you had answered 59% of the questions right, you would be a failure. And that's ground into us over and over and over again throughout all of these tests. So if you go back and, and, and think about this from the standpoint of why is it that people who are true inventors and who are focused on innovation wind up achieving things, it's because they're not afraid to fail. Think about the great scientist Linus Pauling, and, and one of his statements was, you have to generate a lot of ideas to get a, to get a good one. And there was even a, a university study that they somehow figured out that it took 30 ideas to get one good one, right? So, so in the teaser of this program, I'm, uh, I'm saying people that ask me, how do you come up with, with uh, good ideas? And it's like, well, how many bad ideas are you generating? And when I say bad ideas, I, I, I'm really just kind of being a little facetious, but it's like, if the 30 to one ratio is correct, then you got to come up with 29 ideas that are not good in order to harvest that one idea that is good. And, and that takes us back to this issue of the fear of failure and the ridicule. And are we really willing to crank through 30 ideas to, to come up with one good one? And, you know, if you do the math on it, one good idea in 30 is actually only a 3.33% success rate. Well, that's quite a bit lower than 60%, right? So here, here we are forced into thinking that, hey, if we want to be A, if we want to be, you know, considered to be an A student, if we want to consider to be a A employee, if we wanted to be considered a an A innovative creative thinker, we have to be nine times out of 10 great ideas. And it's just not feasible. It's just not reasonable to think that. And the fact that there may be senior leadership, maybe your supervisor or boss or the, the, the head of your companies or even other consultants that are out there consulting on this, that would say that that anything, um, you know, uh, less than great ideas all the time uh, is acceptable. It just doesn't bear out in reality. You have to think about this from the standpoint of, I have to be unafraid to continue to come up with ideas 
and continue to think on those ideas. And when somebody says it's crazy, instead of shrinking back to my shell, ask them, well, why is it crazy? What is it about that idea that makes it crazy to you? And listen to what they say, because chances are, chances are what they're going to say isn't going to convince you that the idea is crazy. What it probably will do is give you insight into how somebody else looks at your idea that would help you iterate on your idea and perhaps change it or alter it in a way that then to people like that person, it becomes less crazy. So again, this whole idea of coming up with ideas doesn't mean that 29 ideas are just totally worthless and are discarded. It may mean that one of those ideas that isn't good to begin with is just the beginning or seed, a seed of an idea that then germinates and sprouts and you give it cultivation, you put it in good soil and you give it water and you talk about it with other people and over time, it sprouts into this great fruit of innovation. So you have to start off by thinking that failure is good and don't let anybody, not your coworkers, not your family, not your boss, not your boss's boss, don't let anyone ever limit your ability to come up with an idea. Maybe it isn't a good idea. Maybe it's a crazy idea. But only in the way that we generate ideas and the volume that we create spurs enough thinking for truly good ideas for ourselves or our organizations to come forth. And pay close attention to others' ideas as well. Because when you're in a group and somebody else offers an idea and in your mind you're thinking, that's a crazy idea. But you know what would be a good idea. So just the fact that these ideas are coming out is a, a huge uh, bonus for the ability to spark you to think about other ideas, which then others may think your spark of that idea is crazy. And so the cycle goes through that process. And hopefully you're in an environment where ideas are cultivated, are welcomed, are encouraged, um, that you're not ridiculed. But even if you are, you have to steal yourself and say, I'm going to be creative and I'm going to figure out how to convert creative ideas into innovations, and nobody is going to stop me from doing that. Now, quick aside here. There is no place for you to be arrogant or rude or unprofessional to anyone. If somebody is ridiculing you or whatever, hey, just, just move along. You don't need to get into a shouting match with somebody at the, at the coffee pot over them ridiculing your idea. And there's certainly no cause for you to ever be unprofessional to your boss or your boss's boss. You just continue to unashamedly come up with ideas. And over time, over time, people who come up with ideas will, in fact, come up with good ideas, will, in fact, iterate and come up with positive things for yourself, for the organization. And over time, that gets noticed. So, you know, you're, some of you may be looking for the immediate payoff. It may take time. Your efforts may not be immediately rewarded. Stick to it. Stick to it. Now, I want to be very, very clear that that I'm not suggesting that we should just be totally accepting of error, right? So, you know, if if I have, um, uh, I do a lot of work in financial services, bank tellers, it's never okay for their, their drawer to be out of balance. It's just not acceptable. The banks frown on it. And as a board meeting, I look at and see reports every month of bank tellers who can't uh, keep their drawer in balance. If I had an electrician come to my house, I don't think I'd be very tolerant of them making an error if they're wiring a ceiling fan and it, and it burns down my house. Certainly, if I was going to a doctor or, or, or a surgeon and there's some kind of error, that's not acceptable 
it could actually mean the loss of life. So I want to specifically point out the difference between an error or mistake in what I call the execution of, of a task, something that's procedurally accurate and should happen, like open heart surgery or installing a fan or balancing a teller drawer, and an error in innovation where, where somebody is actually purposefully trying to innovate and come up with some new idea and, is, and as a part of that is making mistakes. Now, I don't want my doctor to be going off on some kind of innovative path during my open heart surgery. But in the middle of my open heart surgery, if something were to happen, something completely, an artery that's completely not related to whatever they're working on just pops off and it's spurting or whatever else. And the doctor grabs a hairpin from a nurse and clamps it on there. You know, I'm just, I'm making this up on the fly. But you, you see what I'm saying is, is in a situation where innovation is called for, I'm willing for them to, to work on and try anything because I'm not going to be concerned about an error in innovation as opposed to an error in execution. So what innovation really means is that you're not afraid to fail. You are not afraid to fail. In fact, you embrace failure as either an iterative path to get you to some somewhere successful or that the failure itself could turn out to be the thing, just like I mentioned Roundup earlier in the episode. So think about Thomas Edison's well, uh, well known that he, you know, did over a thousand iterations to, to come up with a light bulb. I read recently where it really, that number is really more like 9,000 different uh, iterations and tries to perfect the light bulb. Being aware of the iterations after each idea you know, is continually perfecting the idea. So it's not like Edison started with the same original plan and did it a thousand times. As he's working through thousands of times, he's learning things. He's figuring out this about the filament, that about the bulb, this other about the vacuum inside, and so on and so forth. And all of those kind of micro iterations all continue to add and try and test and so forth to eventually create a light bulb. And it's, and it's that innovation drive to say, I'm, I'm persistent, right, to, to work on this. And I, and I say this many times to folks. How many times, put yourself in Edison's place, how many times would you have tried? Would you, would you have tried a hundred times and then thrown up your hands and say, oh, I don't think this is going to work. Would you, would you have gone 200 times, 500 times? Would you have gone thousands of tries? I mean, we get pretty impatient these days on stuff. We make a couple of errors. You know, we, we, we know that errors are not welcomed or not encouraged. And we just quit and move on. Who, who knows how many amazing discoveries just were right on the precipice of happening, but were abandoned simply because somebody made a couple of errors and mistakes or it didn't come, uh, look like it was going anywhere right away and they gave up. Oh, so, uh, so heartbreaking to think of. So if if making mistakes is something that we shouldn't be opposing, does that mean that all success is good, right? So certainly success and achievement in this execution, right? Not making errors in execution should be applauded, right? Tellers that are always balanced. And I should mention that when I go to my board meetings, they list all the tellers who have perfect records, right? So they're applauding tellers who have perfection in uh, in their execution of being a teller. So we reward those that are doing that good. But but is success always a good? And, and what does good success do 
relative to how we think about and view innovation, right? So, so success can sort of lock us into um, lock us into a pattern. Um, you know, we get to where, especially if we are working in a procedural based um, type uh, organization, where a lot of the things we do are based on well well organized procedures, step one, step two, step three, step four, and so forth. That locks us into a pattern. And then the pattern almost becomes a, a gospel. It almost becomes the golden rule. This is how we do things. And so somebody new comes in the organization and is looking at it. You know, why, why do you do step four? And then, you know, this is how we do things here. So that pattern can be very negating as it relates to looking at and understanding innovation. Success can also limit attempts to iterate. So, you know, if if you say that you're going to go and have a procedure and it, and it really does work, and there is a reason for step four, but you are satisfied with it, so you really make no attempts to further improvement. Just because something works doesn't mean that it's really achieved the fullness of the innovation. So if we're not willing to look at something and say, well, it's not broken, but maybe I should break it, right? So you, you, you've heard that you know statement, if it's not broke, break it, or at least maybe for our purposes. If it's not broke, think about if it was broke and what would need to be done to fix it to really kind of open your mind to other ideas related to iterative thinking. You know, success can also create new problems. Create new problems. David, what do you what are you talking about? Well, there's a there's a great story that Roger Van Ock mentioned in his book. And, and there was an Olympic team from years back. And so you've got this rowing crew, right? So you've got four rowers, you know, that are in a in a skull and they're in they're racing. And so the Olympic coach, you know, getting prepared for the for the big meets brings in a meditation expert, right? And so this meditation expert works with the team to really kind of get them in sync, you know, with their breathing and their their emotion and everything else. And so the team really grabs this, this meditation concept and, and brings it together. And all of a sudden, they are in complete harmony as they're rowing their, their skull. The problem is, is that their times all decreased, right? They, they were never going as fast as they were before the meditation expert. Now, at the end of the day, regardless of what you do for the team, if you're trying to be an Olympic you know, medalist, you want the fastest time. That's got to be the outcome, not getting all the rowers in harmony. And so what they found was the coach looked at this and said, these team members are now more concerned about being in harmony and less concerned about rowing fast. Right. So so sometimes when when we think that we have an idea, it might not have the best outcome. So just because something is a creative idea and it's innovative, you have to then test to see whether you're getting the results that you want. Otherwise, you could say, well, it's a success, meaning that the meditation guy got them together and, and were they were more in harmony, but it didn't lead to the actual outcome that the coach wanted. And lastly, success can can breed overconfidence. And I've known people who are very, very smart, technically brilliant people who, you know, had had achieved success and, and whose overconfidence was was really more closely or, or dead on to being arrogant, right? You, you get to the point where I know I'm right. 
and I think this is a this is a hard thing for successful people. I've started uh, multiple businesses that have been successful, but I've also invested and started business that have failed. You know, so this idea that oh we're always right, whatever, just there's just no basis for that. Uh, and regardless of how much success you've had, you should be thinking about how do I look for new ideas? Am I listening? to others and, and how they explain uh, problems or, or look at my forest and my trees and, and talk about them differently than I see them, do I dismiss that out of hand because I, uh, they don't know what they're talking about? Or am I open? Am I receptive to that? Everyone who is successful has to guard against overconfidence and arrogance. Now, one way for you to identify errors where you know, innovation can spark is by avoiding what I call the numbing effect of routine. So earlier I mentioned this idea that we can get locked into a pattern, particularly as it relates to different steps. So when we do that, if, if you're a professional who has a six-step process, and you literally, you've done that thousands of times, when something comes up that might be an indicator that we would need to change our thinking about step four, because of the number of times we've done that, it's very easy for us to overlook a, a, quote, error or a mistake that could be the spark or the seed of innovation. And we just simply conform it into what we know step four to be. And this is very, very common where any kind of little iteration is just sort of explained away, you know, as an aberration or, or literally we'll, we'll convince ourselves that it wasn't actually an aberration to force it into our idea of what each of these different steps or components could be. And that's what I call the numbing effect of routine. So when, whenever there's a, a mutation is the way Roger describes it in, in his book, a whack on the side of the head. I love this book. Whenever there's a mutation, whenever something happens different, that is the element for us to really have creative thought about it. Maybe it's not appropriate for you to stop everything you're doing and do it right then, but you need to make a note, you need to write something down and circle back around, maybe get some folks together, whatever, and say, well, suppose this was happening on a more regular basis. What would we do about that? I mean, I'll, I'll talk about it just for a moment on, on an HR perspective, right? So as HR professionals work with a number of different types of people, what if the way that they had established uh, procedures for how to do training, how to interact, how to uh, provide leadership training, how to establish uh, rules and, and regulations and so forth based on only how baby boomers would react to those. And then as Gen X and millennials and now Gen Zs are coming into the uh, workforce, they made no adjustments. It's like, well, hey, this, these are the rules that we have set up. And, and so you conform to those rules. Well, we know that those younger generations do not interact with education and training and rules and regulations and supervisory uh, type things in the same way that their parents and grandparents did. So there is a constant changing of things. Nobody can sit there and say, this is always the same. You know, years and years ago, somebody invented that uh, that heart surgery, but the way they do it today is radically different from uh, those early days. It's constantly changing. I don't care what your business is. You know, the dry cleaners are constantly looking at ways to perfect and come up with new ideas on using these chemicals that are more safe for the environment. Uh, funeral home directors are coming up with uh, ways that they can provide meaningful services for bereavement at a time when social gatherings and 
you know, the kinds of activities that would typically happen at a funeral or memorial service are outlawed in, in many states. Every single thing, every single day, there are changes that are happening in our routine that are the spark or the or the initiation of our thinking creatively about a subject and then converting that creativity into innovation. So let me sort of kind of wrap this up by kind of talking about the idea of examining the effects of, of a new idea or a project. One of the things that's very important for you to do as you're going through, you're saying, okay, David, I'm not, I'm not afraid. I'm generating ideas. I'm working on creating those ideas into innovation. And much in the same way that yeah, I talked about the, the Olympics and, and they, they brought the meditation coach in and, and it had a negative effect. When you're coming up with things that you believe are at the point that they're going to be implemented, you should always ask your, always ask yourself or your team this question. What bad can happen if this idea is a success? If everything goes exactly the way we want it to, what's the worst that can happen? And I talk about this a lot. And, and I actually have a really good example from the book that I wrote back in 2016 called Grounded. Shameless plug here if you're interested in that book. Uh, there, there's a link to it in the show notes. But in Grounded, I talk about sailing with my dad and a friend. And we are, are getting to the Bahamas, supposed to get there during the daytime. We get there at night. And so everything inside the coast of the Bahamas is extremely shallow. We're in a sailboat. It has five feet, you know, from the waterline down. So we just know that if we go in, it's dark. We're not going to be able to see the channel. There's no lights. We're going to get stuck in the sand. So we decide to stay offshore and we put out a, a sea anchor to kind of relatively hold position. And, and so we achieved our goal of not getting stuck in the sand. So, so you could say that it was a success. The problem is, is that on my watch, I fell asleep and we wound up drifting into a coral island, a coral key. And uh, the boat got a hole ripped in the bottom of it and it's completely destroyed. And the bones of that boat still sit you know, snorkelers can go over there and, and uh, dive on that wreck. That was something very bad that could happen if we stayed out. In other words, if we had gone in and gotten stuck in the sand, the worst that would have happened is, is that we would have had to have gotten somebody to come and pull us off the sand. But the boat would have been completely intact because it's just sand. Out in the Atlantic, these keys on the Atlantic side are all coral and rocks. And, and when boats uh, with wood holes hit those, they, they sink. So when you're thinking of an idea, when you're saying, here's what our plan of action is, don't just take the time to talk about all the good things that would happen if you do it. Make sure that you examine what could bad happen. What's the bad things that could happen? Spend some time thinking on those things. And if some of those bad things are truly bad, if they come to pass, then you either need to remediate those or you need to seriously consider whether or not you should move forward with your innovation. So there's always that, you know, I always want to talk about innovation in a positive light, but there are negative things that can happen and we should be aware of those and we should make sure that we're avoiding really bad things that happen if our innovations turn out to be great. Play-Doh was failed wallpaper cleaner. Uh, Post-it notes is a glue that can never get to stick enough. It, it was a mistake and they could never get it sticky enough for their purposes. <laughs> men's Rogaine. When I talk about men's Rogaine, you know, we only think about it as this thing that grow hair, but what they were trying to do was lower blood pressure in men. 
And so they were giving it to these men as a topical solution and they're, you know, they're rubbing it on their, uh, on their head and, and it did nothing to improve their blood pressure, but it was growing hair on their head, on their shoulders, and basically everywhere where it touched, on their arms, they, wherever they rubbed it, they were growing hair. So when mistakes happen, when things happen, when we have the opportunity to look at a process or procedure and notice that there's some type of mutation or difference, when we're actively innovating and trying to come up with ideas, we're looking for those places where the mistake or the accident actually is, is a line of new thinking or new creativity to be pursued. This idea that we should abhor mistakes in execution, I applaud. But we also often then say that we shouldn't be making mistakes in innovation, and that in of itself is a grave error. I am challenging you today this week, this month, on a go-forward basis to stop letting your fear of failure stop you from innovating, from coming up with creative ideas, and be boldly ready to raise your hand and offer up an idea and face down the ridicule if it comes, but continue to press forward. And over time, your persistence in professionally coming up with ideas will generate results and those results will get noticed, positively noticed by coworkers, by your boss and your boss's boss. How are you going to capitalize on mistakes this week? Think about it. Thanks again for investing your valuable time listening to the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. I covet your questions, comments, or critique. You can reach me at david at davidpeterson.com. I'm also on Facebook at DP Speaks and everywhere else on social media at DLP Speaks. I look forward to hearing from you and be sure to look for a new episode soon. <music>